You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see everybody here this morning. It's nice to see the sun shining outside. Nice change. Okay, is it spring, actually? Who thinks it's actually spring? Who thinks it's going to snow again? Oh, man. <laughs> All right, well, I'm thankful we serve a, a much bigger God than what we can even fathom, so I guess what he chooses is best. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> but we thank the Lord that this day right now is the one that he is involved in. So let's rejoice in that, be glad in that. John, I'm going to start with the book of John, all right, before I get to the book of Luke. Uh, John records some words of Jesus in chapter 5 of his gospel. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of the day, and he says to them in John 5, 39 to 40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus points the people, the leaders, back to the Scriptures, not for their own sake, but for the sake of finding the true Word, the living Word, which is Jesus. Jesus also records, or sorry, John also records Jesus speaking of of intimacy and of Him knowing us. In John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Jesus talks of the personal relationship that he has with us, his sheep. And we are known by him, and we can know him. So this morning, I'm going to talk about Shakespeare. I'm going to quote Martin Luther. And I'm going to mention how Canada geese can bring us closer to God. (laughs) Hear me out. (laughs) So let's get going. We're going to join the disciples once again on the day that they find the empty tomb. All right, this this is take us back one week where Pastor Blair talked uh, to us last week about the women. Uh, They go back, they go to the tomb of Jesus where they, they saw Jesus' body get laid on Friday evening and they want to prepare it for burial. And so they take spices, they're going there, but all of a sudden the tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled aside. And, and to top it off, the, the women come back and they have stories of angels. They, see, they have stories that they have seen angels saying that Jesus himself is alive. And according to the, the Gospel of Luke, then Peter goes and he, he checks this out. All right? And he's like, well, what is going on? And so he goes to the tomb and he finds the tomb empty, but he doesn't see any angels and he doesn't see Jesus. He just sees the linen cloth laying there. And so it seems as if no one, according to just what the information is in the Gospel of Luke, that no one is quite sure is what has happened. You know, the disciples are confused. They're perplexed. And, and it says that Peter marveled about what, is, what was happening. All right? So there, there, there's this uncertainty. There's like, what is going on here? And so we find two disciples this morning uh, named Cleopas and someone else. It uh, doesn't say... They're going to a village called Emmaus, and 
I imagine, in my imagination this week, as I've been preparing this message, I have been thinking about it as, as Cleopas and perhaps his wife. Right? Just, it, make, it makes things easier if I have a mental picture of who this other person is. And so those two people, a husband and wife, they're heading back to Emmaus, perhaps to their house, all right, where they have, they have lived because they have just spent the Passover, a very high Jewish festival in Jerusalem. So they've come there for the Passover, and now they're heading back. And so let's pick up the story in Luke 24. I'll be reading thir- verses 13 all the way to 35. That very day... Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Just like that. One of them named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these last days? And he said to them, Well, what things? And so they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped... He was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen visions of angels and who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him... They did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. Jesus, that's who it is, he acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening and the day is now spent. So he went in with them. He was at table with them and he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while, we talked, while he talked with us on the road, while he opened up to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Wow. So Cleopas and his companion, whoever that might be, maybe his wife, they're discussing the events that had happened over the weekend. 
or I guess what we would call the weekend now. Because what else are they going to talk about, or what else are they going to do as they walk back home? All right, so if we're talking about seven miles, I figure, you know, that's probably about a two-hour walk. So you have two hours to kill. You're going to talk. You're going to figure out what's going to, you know, you're going to talk about what has just happened. And so as they are walking and talking, a, a stranger, a stranger to them, catches up to them and asks them, what are they talking about? I feel that that would probably be a pretty common thing back in the day. Travelers would come upon one another, they would form groups, and they would travel together because it's safer, right, in those days. And so I think it would be a fairly common thing. A stranger comes up, what are you guys talking about? And simple enough question, but it, it stops them in their tracks. Cleopas is surprised that Jesus doesn't know what they are talking about what, and what it has made them sad. And, and Jesus, always ready to listen, asks them, well, what, what things have been going on? <laughs> Jesus responds with a statement of facts according to what they know about. And he says, well, Jesus, he, he was an upright prophet who did amazing things in the sight of man and God. He's been crucified by our chief priests and leaders. We had our hopes up that he was the one that would save us. He would save all of Israel. Then, to make matters more confusing to us, we just heard reports this morning that some women went to the tomb and they found it open and empty and that some angels actually told them that Jesus was alive and other people have seen the empty tomb, but no one has actually seen Jesus. I guess, I, honestly, I probably would have been sad and confused too if those were the facts that I had. So imagine, if you will, that Cleopas and his companion, they, they perhaps have been disciples of Jesus for a while. They have put all their hopes on him. And now their rabbi is supposedly dead, but they can't even find the body. Hmm. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he, as I said, he starts by asking what is bothering them, and then he listens. And after he's heard them, he, he starts to reveal himself, but through the scriptures. And please note that they still don't know who he is. He's leading them up to a big reveal, but that moment has not come yet. And so Jesus responds to their facts by saying in verses 25 and 26, as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, so thick-headed, so slow-hearted. Why can't you simply believe all that the prophets have said? Don't you see that these things had to happen so that the Messiah had to suffer and only then enter into his glory? So Jesus gently rebukes them and then starts what we can only imagine would be the best Bible study ever. All right, Jesus himself the author and perfecter of our faith, guides them through the entire scriptures, pointing to and interpreting all the scriptures that concern himself. Wow. This makes me think of grade 10 English class. We had to read Shakespeare, uh, in specifically Romeo and Juliet. Anyone else? Probably most of us. It seems that, you know... Uh, Grade 10 English in, in Alberta, we talk about Romeo and Juliet. Okay, here's the next question. Did you understand it? 
few of you, wow, okay, good on you guys. I didn't. I really did not understand Shakespeare at all on my own. Not a clue what was going on. The words and vocabulary were very confusing to young Brad. I was this, no, I wasn't that short, but <laughs> Shakespeare, he definitely had a way with words, but it was way too hard for me to understand. And so I am incredibly thankful that I had an amazing teacher, Mr. Lavin, who took the time to explain and interpret what Shakespeare was actually saying and the themes that he was developing. It's obvious that, that Shakespeare's plays have had a lasting impact on our society. They continue to show up um, in various forms, uh, you know, The Lion King, West Side Story, just watched that recently, uh, that old movie, 10 Things I Hate About You. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a good movie. I enjoyed it. It took someone that knew more about Shakespeare than me to teach it and explain it to me. And so how much better would it have been if Jesus himself walked these two disciples through what we now know as the Old Testament and explain how things all tie together to point toward Jesus. Wow. What he actually said, and what scriptures he actually takes them to, is, is completely a conjecture on our part. It's not recorded there. But I'm going to take an educated guess, all right? And drawing from people who are much smarter than I am, and know a lot more about prophecy than I do, uh, but let's take a look at the Old Testament, and see what Jesus might have pointed them towards. How he would have had this conversation as they walked along a road in Israel. And I think that Jesus probably started, or he might have started, in Genesis 3, verse 15. Where God himself offers the first prophecy about the offspring of Eve crushing the head of the devil. And it says, I will put enmity between you, speaking about the snake and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Good place to start. Victory is assured. Perhaps Jesus reminded them of the promise made to Abram in Genesis 12, where in verses 2 and 3, God says, And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's the bit. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The offspring of Abram will be a blessing to all the world, to the whole earth. Jesus may have pointed Cleopas and his companion to the story in Genesis 22, where Abraham being commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac, and at the last moment God himself providing the sacrifice. I would think that Jesus definitely touched on the story of Passover found in Exodus chapter 12. This story would have been very fresh in these disciples' minds because they just celebrated Passover and how a perfect, spotless lamb had to die in order to save the people from being destroyed. From there, it's pretty clear connection to the sacrificial system found and outlined in Leviticus. The sacrificing of animals was required to bring forgiveness and a right relationship with God. And right in the beginning of Leviticus, in chapter 1, verse 4, it says, He, the priest or the person, shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering 
and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him, to cover one's sins. And Jesus would have pointed out that this sacrificial system pointed out that something perfect and blameless had to die in order to bring about right relationship with God. Blood had to be spilled to forgive sins. Jesus would have pointed out, as he continued through the the Old Testament, he might have come to the, the book of Numbers, where there's a story in chapter 21 of people dying because they were being bit by deadly snakes. And Moses, in that story, is commanded by God to make a bronze serpent and somehow mount it on a tall pole so that the people might look at it and, be, and, and live. And, jo- and in John 3, Jesus himself provides commentary, thankfully, for this event, as he says in John 3, 14 and 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus could have pointed out <laughs> that this rabbi Jesus, speaking about himself, had said these things and pointed Cleopas back to the, the book of Numbers where the bronze serpent can be seen as foreshadowing of Jesus being lifted up on a pole or on a cross. Cleopas, don't you see that Jesus himself said that he was going to be lifted up and die so that people might have eternal life? To further emphasize this point, I don't think Jesus could have missed the book of Isaiah. He would have had to stop there where there's so much prophecy about the servant of God. Now, I think that Cleopas and the rest of the disciples probably held very closely, held very fast to the certain prophecies about the servant bringing about justice and the law to the lands and to the tribes of Israel, like that in in Isaiah 42 verse 4, where it says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. In the disciples' minds, the servant wasn't supposed to lose until he had established justice and law on the earth. But Jesus needed to point out to these disciples that The servant was meant for so much more than that. In Isaiah 49 verse 6, Isaiah writes, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The servant was to be salvation for the nations to the ends of the earth. How is he going to be doing that? By being obedient, even to the point of disgrace and death. Isaiah 50 verses 5 and 6 records what the servant is like. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike it and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. The suffering of the Christ was prophesied to happen. Jesus probably carried on to what, to, and pointed out to these disciples what it says in Isaiah 52 and in chapter 53, where it talks very plainly that the servant will suffer horribly, 
and will die and be laid in the grave at the hands of men in order to bear the sins of the people and the whole world. But it also says that in the end, the servant shall see the light and be satisfied and will receive a portion of the spoils. Just a few of those verses in Isaiah 53 verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, 8 and 9. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And then a bit later on in 53.11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall come, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Perhaps at this point, I'm kind of hoping that Cleopas would have acknowledged that the Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel, would have had to die in order to save his people. But where is he now? Where's the body? What happened to that? So Jesus perhaps reassured them of the resurrection by pointing to the Psalms, like in Psalm 16, verse 10, where it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Or again, in Psalm 30, verse 3, where again it says, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Cleopas, don't you see that the Christ had to suffer? He had to die and then he can be raised again to life. And I believe that, that Jesus would have been fairly persuasive with his words. <laughs> he is the living word, after all. And I just, I just think, though, that, that Cleopas and the rest of the disciples perhaps got, got kind of stuck on things that led them to believe that in the, in, in the conquering king, that the Messiah was promised to be. Like what it is said in, in Zechariah chapter 9. So take for example what it says in verses 9 and then 14. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The disciples had in fact seen Jesus riding a donkey. Very tangible, very evident right there. He, they loved that part, right? They loved the triumphant entry. The whole, the whole city was ready for the Messiah, to come and reveal himself, to, for the arrows to go forth like lightning and God to march forth in power to redeem Israel. But they let the other parts about suffering slip from their minds. And so Jesus, as he so clearly pointed out, the whole scriptures 
were there to point people toward Christ, who not only would have victory on earth, but would have to suffer and die to get there. As Martin Luther wrote, there's not a word in the Bible which can be understood without reference to the cross. As we go to the cradle only in order to find the baby, so we go to the scriptures only to find Christ. That is what Jesus himself did and gave us an example to follow. And so I want to draw out a point here before we continue with the text. When we are sad, like it said that Cleopas and his companion were, what do we do? When we feel discouraged and and perhaps overwhelmed by the events of society around us, what do we do with that? I believe that this story gives us a great way forward from our grief and our confusion. Go to the Bible. Go to the Word of God. Read Scripture. Seek the Holy Spirit to understand it. Go to trusted people who... As I'll point out in a bit, it's important to have a personal relationship with. Remember, Jesus promised us the Holy Spirit. And he says this in John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So we ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand the word. Because no matter what is happening around us, the Word of God always points us toward Jesus, the living Word, who offers us wisdom and comfort and peace. I think far too often when we are overwhelmed or in grief from the events in the culture around us, we talk amongst ourselves with the the quote-unquote facts that we know. And we still can't come to a good answer. We seek out facts from others. We seek out human wisdom that try to make sense of the events around us. And we seek people who who don't really know us and we, we don't really know them so that they can give us insight. You know, for example, who who is this random person on the internet that we're listening to? And why why do they deserve our attention? Friends, we need to use discernment as we seek out understanding. Otherwise, I believe we will be like immature children who, according to Paul in Ephesians 4.14, say they are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather than this, Paul continues, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So let's be discerning as to who we are listening to and who we get insight from. Let us speak truth to one another in love and help each other be built up. And most, most importantly, above all else, let us go to the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ for understanding and for answers. By the time that Cleopas, his companion, and Jesus, the three of them had reached Emmaus, 
I would imagine that the two disciples were feeling more informed of what had happened. They probably felt assured that, yes, Jesus could well have been the hope of Israel and that his death did not negate that fact. They may have accepted that Jesus had been raised from the dead, but they were still unaware of where he might be. They still may have had that little bit of doubt in their minds. Jesus could have been risen, but, but where is he then? Why, why is he hiding in their minds? They probably were thinking. And so as they neared the end of their journey, Jesus made it seem like he was going to go further. But following the hospitality customs of the day, Cleopas and his, his wife or his companion invited and urged Jesus to come with them and to stay with them because it was getting late in the day. And again, it's unsafe. it would be unsafe for people to travel during the nighttime or once it got dark. And so Jesus consented and joined them as they went into their house and had a meal together. Now it says in verses 30 and 31, when he was at table with them, he, speaking of Jesus, took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. That would have been frustrating. Oh, it's just like they see him and then he's gone. I wonder how like the duration of time he was revealed and then like a split second later he was gone, like maybe a few minutes. I don't know. Anyways, those are the questions that I have in my mind. But that's interesting. How did Jesus break the bread? That's another big question. My wife and kids and I, we were, we were talking. It's just like, did Jesus have like a super unconventional way of breaking bread? that was like, you know, made it super obvious that it was Jesus? You know, did he put it up above his head? Like, my body for you. I don't know. Probably not. I'm, I'm kind of guessing probably not. But you never know. Like, was it perhaps that Jesus just simply chose to reveal himself supernaturally through an overly natural thing that the disciples were doing? Was it to draw their minds back to how Jesus had broken bread and, and fed a multitude of people? Was it a reminder of how Jesus told his disciples to break bread and remember the Lord's death? However this meal played out, Jesus was revealed to these disciples through the simple act of breaking bread together, of eating together around a table. Now, it wasn't through talking about scriptures that Jesus revealed to them, was revealed to them, although they had to do that to get to this point. It's like they had to have that foundation of scripture first, but it was through the breaking of bread, it says in verse 35, that Jesus was made known to them. And now, the obvious symbolism here is very clear to me. The breaking of bread makes me think about communion. All right, the Last Supper, about how Jesus uses bread to symbolize giving of himself for other, to other people. This is my body given for you, as it says in Luke chapter 22. Abram Kielsmir Jones puts it this way. Jesus appears to them through the reading of Scripture and through fellowship at a table. Time and time again, the early church and the church throughout the ages would gather to hear the word of God proclaimed 
and the sacrament of communion celebrated, and in so doing, the church would continue to recognize its, its risen Lord. And how beautiful that is. We recognize our risen Lord, and then we proclaim the risen Lord. Communion is an intimate, personal connection that we have with Jesus Christ. And we will, we will celebrate that in a little bit. But there was another idea that was going through my head all week as I, as I studied and prayed for this sermon about this. Jesus was making known, sorry, Jesus was made known to these disciples through a very ordinary, everyday thing. And so the question that I was asking myself, and I ask you right now, is how is Jesus being revealed to you through your ordinary, everyday life? And the word that, that kept coming to me as I was thinking about that was, was sacrament, which traditionally means a religious ceremony or ritual regarded as imparting divine grace. Right? That sounds very high and mighty, very important. But we, we have the sacrament of communion, for example, which is quite simply eating bread and drinking juice and wine. And so we see eating and drinking, very regular things, but commanded by Jesus is something that reminds us of God, that gives us a tangible way of receiving God's mercy and grace. And it reminds us that Jesus died and rose again for us. Matt Woodley, a pastor from New York, gives the word sacrament a, a more interesting and, and a more modern definition. And he says, it's a good solid word to convey the idea that God works through real stuff. Like trees and rocks, bread and wine, stars and human hands to demonstrate his love for us. And he goes on to argue that sacraments are based in the stuff of creation. Like the real things around us and in the actions of real life. They're tangible, like water to get baptized in, bread and wine, to remember Jesus with. And so a sacrament, according to Woodley's definition, could be using a stone to remind you of God's goodness and mercy as the Israelites were commanded to in Joshua chapter 4. It tells the story that they set up 12 memorial stones as a reminder to future generations of God's leading them through the Jordan River. Or perhaps looking up at the stars, and being reminded of God's faithfulness and provision to us, like Abram in Genesis 15. A sacrament could also be going for a walk outside, observing the geese, honking, scrapping, pooping, and being taken care of by God, and being reminded that God will take care of us, like Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 6. Or what about being together just with my family, my kids, my wife, and simply enjoying the sounds of my kids playing together, and through that, knowing that God is present with us. I love having plants that are in my line of sight as I sit at my desk upstairs, and I can, I can see them from here too, and they're still alive, and I'm amazed at that. I'm amazed that I can keep plants alive, so praise God for that. And, but I, just, I know that if I simply water them, and I give them a bit of plant food every week, and if I just let them be, 
they get some sunshine in the morning, God will allow them to grow. And that's exciting. Tangible reminders to me of God's presence and plan in the world. And so Jesus walked along a dusty road with these disciples and turned it into a sacrament, a holy moment where the scriptures were open to them. Jesus ate bread with them and turned it into a moment of revealing grace. I think it's only proper that after this experience of seeing God, wow, they quickly realize how their hearts ached, how they burned when they heard that the truth when they heard the truth in scripture. And they rushed back to Jerusalem to tell all the disciples what had happened. And I love how Luke just sums it up in verse 35. When they when they told the other disciples what had happened, or sorry, then they told the other disciples what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Jesus is alive. That message needs to be shared with everyone. These two disciples realized that very quickly. And I imagine that they jumped up from the table, shocked, because Jesus had just disappeared. Weird. But they jumped up from the table and they were like, ah, we got to do something. And so they ran, or at least they jogged, I'm hoping. They went back to Jerusalem very quickly in high excitement that they could share their experience with the, experience with the risen Lord with the rest of the group. Have we looked into Scripture recently and had an encounter with the living God? Have we had our eyes opened to God's presence by something seemingly ordinary in our life? I pray that we would turn to the Word in our sadness and see Jesus in the Bible when we read it as the Holy Spirit makes Jesus known to them. I pray that we would take note of the sacraments of real life around us, the tangible reminders of God's mercy and grace in our lives.